All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to MoneyWise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. For any new listeners to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 35th year of business, and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, we have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach within our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. Well, as we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I turn it over to my brother, Jeff, to go into the numbers from Wall Street from this past week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up about 504 points or 1.3%. The S&P 500 last week was up about 83 points, or 1.7%. And the NASDAQ last week was up about 221 points, or 1.4%. Now, for the year to date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 3.8%. The S&P 500 year-to-date is up 6.7%. And the NASDAQ year-to-date is up 6.6%. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. Well, what a week! So, what a week! What a week, gentlemen. So, if you, I, I guess, if you if you annualize the S and P's return so far for the rest of the year, it's approaching forty percent. Yes, I'll, I'll take it. That's a, that's a little bit more than du- triple what I predicted, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, it might have been like eight times what I predicted. Uh, I guess what I would say, ladies and gentlemen, is. I think it's highly unlikely that we're going to be up uh, 40% this year, uh, which would then lead me to believe, okay, so how much of this performance we're seeing here in the first quarter is going to slow down as the year goes on? Um, We had, I hate, you know, dad is just going to hate me for doing this, but the Fed speak this week was very contradictory in, in some respects. Some members that were out there delivering speeches were towing the company line, if you will, that they've got to see more progress and more data before they would even think about beginning the rate-cutting process, whereas others, other Fed governors, I think Kyle will find the name of the one particular Federal Federal Reserve person. Vice Chairman Jefferson. Who is a voting member. Um, was talking about uh, interest rate cuts sooner rather than later. And, you know, to me, 
you've got one voice. That's kind of an to me. That's an outlier. I'm not. I'm not hearing that from the vast majority of the governors. So since this, the market this year seemed to have so much of its anticipation uh, on the on on interest rate cuts happening sooner rather than later. Uh, the, the CPI number that we got a few weeks back, and you know, followed on with the the producer price index number, seemed to throw a lot of cold water on that. And, and my expectation is is that now that we've had this number come, these numbers come out that are were hotter than expected, that it just it pushes the whole timeline out because now we've got to have the next month's numbers got to got to show progress that go in the other way. And then you have to have several more months of progress occurring still in the downside for for inflation before the Fed's really going to actually start to talk about making t- t- taking you know have, having interest rate cuts occur. So we do get PCE next week, and I know that's one of their uh, personal consumption index, one of the Federal Reserve's key numbers. If that comes in hot. To me, you, you're going to push this whole thing, this whole expectation back another quarter, in my opinion. And now we're talking. Now you're talking about you know, late third, early fourth quarter. Your dad was dad had said he thought they'd be cutting in March, and we've got a lot of Fed speak next week. I think we have like ten different uh, speeches occurring in the latter latter part of the week. There's a Fed meeting in March. There is. Zero chance, in my opinion, that we're going to get any cuts in March at all. And and to me, there's zero chance that even 20% of the governors will be talking about interest rate cuts in the next few months. Now, why has the, the market continues to take that information to take those expectations in stride because I would have thought the market would have been reacting more negatively if it's if the the market's timeline where we're going to have interest rate cuts sooner rather than later is not proving to be the case it appears I would expect that the markets to not have to to react react negatively to that but the 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 I was euphoria gonna... the euphoria hold on the euphoria to me and it and I think it's starting to get to euphoria surrounding AI you know especially Nvidia uh, it's 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 a euphoric uh, uh, behavior to me do do any of y'all disagree that there I mean well, there's euphoria occurring in some other stocks too that no one talks about I know we're, well, I don't we're, know I don't, we're joking yeah, about super a, micro, was it super micro, micro super, super micro, micro computer. computers up nine hundred percent year to date. Year to date. Yeah. Yeah. Nine nine hundred percent. And they have a partnership with NVIDIA, so it's it's got caught up in its gravitational pull. And and that's kind of the term I was using. Maybe not euphoric. But I think there's definitely a, a, a gravitational pull that's been carried over from last year around the artificial intelligence and a lot of the ancillary businesses and artificial intelligence that's continuing. But again, when you look at some of these magnificent seven stocks from a valuation standpoint and their forward projected earnings per share growth, you know, valuations, particularly for NVIDIA, Amazon would be another one. Uh, Meta is another one that are not stretched thin 
from a valuation standpoint. They still have a lot of upward upward room to grow when you look at their projected earnings in 2024 and in 2025 and just looking at a five-year average P.E. basis. There's still a lot of room to run, uh, even with the the pull and the the rise that we saw just this past week alone from NVIDIA when it came out with its earnings. So I know we'll have a lot more to discuss when we come back from the first commercial break because we had quite a few little uh, historic markers in the multiple indexes this this uh, this past week. So we'll talk about that more when we come back from our first break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you could subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcast or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning into this weekend's Money Wise program, continuing to recap the happenings of Wall Street from this past week, Joe, I know before we went to break, you had a point that you wanted to make, so I'm going to turn it over to you to make that point so we can kind of continue recapping. Well, well, I can keep my train of thought. And Jeff was talking about some of the euphoria with NVIDIA, but the new catchphrase or word is halo. So there's an AI halo, the semiconductor chip halo. So anything related to semiconductors, chips, uh AI, it seems to be that's where some of this momentum is, is going. But if you look at the indexes, at least it's you're seeing the S&P, which is up about the same as the NASDAQ for the year. So maybe there's a little bit broader growth in the market, maybe some consolidation. But that's the point that, that everybody's talking about now. Hey, what are you going to go buy? What's the hot stock to buy? How can I buy a piece of the Magnificent 7, net maybe Tesla? I mean, Tesla will have its... It's having its, it's kind of its year in the barrel, if you will, but it'll be back again. But just talking to individual clients and people that are looking for invest investment ideas, that seems to be what they're all focusing on is is how can they obviously participate in this party and this this AI slash chip euphoria or halo that's going on out there. But we'll see. Jeff says euphoria. You say halo. I say it's just a gravitational pull <laughs> because we were talking about valuations of some of these names and the valuations from an historic standpoint are not stretched. Now, obviously, this is going to be uh, dependent upon earnings estimates and how accurate the earnings estimates are. I know with with NVIDIA coming out, of course, beating top and bottom line and up, you know, upgrading their next quarter's earnings. But I know, Jeff, you and I were having a conversation, or actually all three of us were in a portfolio strategy meeting on Thursday, saying that NVIDIA only gave guidance out one quarter. You know, they didn't give a full long-term outlook as far as this year is concerned. And so they're taking it on a quarter-by-quarter basis. But when you're seeing some of the sales growth, particularly in the data, you know, in their data center sets, I saw, what, 400% sales growth. I mean, imagine being in, in, on the sales team at NVIDIA selling uh, data center uh, equipment uh, or software or chips. They're having a good year financially. So 
You so know, it's kind of just, like I guess I guess Taylor Swift had the Taylor Swift effect on the NFL. <laughs> Nvidia is having the Nvidia is having the Nvidia effect on the broader market, particularly in the tech space. So you you stole a little bit of my thunder when you said that uh, from a valuation point of view, some of these stocks don't necessarily look stretched. But then, as you said, that's all predicated on an estimate about the future, which may be wrong. Uh, the 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 fact of the matter is, in my the facts as I as I see them with these stocks is the companies that are implementing this 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 AI technology. How much is that going to add to their bottom line? Is it is it going to be quantifiable to add to their bottom line? Uh, can you can we actually see the, you know, these the companies that deploy this how it's helping their businesses how it's growing sales how it's growing profits or is it all just this big well install it and you'll see buy this and you'll see put in this software and you'll see. Um, I think, and, and, I think, and so, and so, to me, the jewel that there's, there's a, there's a, all this money that's rushed into all of this, and driven these stock prices up, as Kramer would say, some of them parabolically, and I can, I can tell you, with without a shadow of a doubt, that uh, Nvidia's sales growth rate will not continue at the percentage rate it is now <laughs> into infinity. It will not. I guarantee you that. The question is, if you buy it today, are you going to make a hundred percent on it in the next next year, or are you going to make ten percent on it, or are you going to make five percent on it, or are you going to lose ten percent on it? Given how much that that stock has gone higher, how much of that future that even the company will not even talk about past a quarter? How much of that future do you want to bet on at this price? Now, and full disclosure, we own it. We've owned it for a long time. We also have reduced it here of late because it got beyond our uh, target allocation by a, a large enough percentage that we took some we took some profits, and we did that this week on a number of stocks. Uh, in our portfolio, because they just they got be too far beyond their target uh, allocation in the portfolio, uh, so that to buy it here, you know, it, it's <laughs> to buy some of those stocks here to buy that you know that super micro computer up nine hundred percent in six weeks, seven weeks. Now that if that isn't euphoria, what is it? Is this, is it the new meme stock? Is is it AMC on steroids? Easy. I, 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 well, <laughs> it's, it's definitely it's definitely not AMC because they do have a business, they do have a product, they do have an affiliation. Well, AMC with, has a with, business. Had has a business I know, too. But, but 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 they had an affiliation with Nvidia, so it's it's definitely one of the hottest. I see a list every morning of the ten biggest stocks that are Google searched. And Supermicro has been on that list for you know every single day, almost every single week so, so far are there, this year. Did there isn't any shades of the internet era, in the AI era? 
None. Ooh, uh-oh. Um, well, here's the, I would say here's some of the difference, though, Jeff, is that the companies that have seen these meteoric rises, a lot of them are senior-level companies. They've been around for years. They do create product. They do balance have earnings. Sheet. They do have profits. They do have a strong balance sheet. They have strong fundamentals. Unlike during the dot-com era, it was two guys in a garage putting dot-com at the end of their company, and they become overnight billionaires. That's, I, that's not the same. Hold on. That's no. not the same situation with AI. But to your point that you were making earlier about AI and is this all hype and can this really create more productivity and really add to a company's bottom line, I would say the answer is yes, but we're just at the tip of the iceberg. I think we're just in the infancy phase of all of this, and it's going to take years, but it's the prospect of its capabilities and how it's going to be applied over the years to come, creating that higher level of productivity and putting more money at the bottom line of these companies. Yeah, Joe. I want to talk about something more basic, okay? So if you're an investor and you got 10 grand or 100 grand or whatever, and you have enough to diversify with stocks, and we won't get into that. But if you want to buy NVIDIA, when we we have a client that has new money, we average in. So we're not buying, you know, we're not buying a full position in NVIDIA today. We're actually averaging in over... Two months, three months, four months. So if you if you have cash and you're creating a portfolio, and NVIDIA is probably the most owned stock in the universe right now, you want to make sure you're disciplined about your approach, not just your sell discipline, which Jeff and Kyle were talking about earlier, and trimming some pro- and taking some profits. Nothing wrong with what do we always say? You don't go broke taking a profit, but have a discipline getting in. Okay, have a discipline getting in. Kind of right. like your four hundred one k dollar cost averaging in. If you know you want to own, own X amount of 10 to 15 to 20 stocks in different industries, drip in. Don't go whole hog in. Just take your time and average in. And if you're a long-term investor, you're going to be okay. If you're trying to time it over the next six months, that's kind of a doom strategy anyways. So just make sure you're doing the yeah. right thing. We're, we're, not, we're not huge fans of, of, the, of the – I mean, yes, there's, there's timing aspects of the market when you're a professional money manager and you do this for a living and you're watching it 24-7, 365. But for just uh, the at-homer, you know, the, the, the at-homer, it's, it's, it can definitely be a failing strategy. But to your point, Joe, you absolutely have to dollar-cost average, and especially at the levels that the market has gotten to already. As we were talking about in the last segment, you annualize the returns of the S&P 500 so far year-to-date. We're approaching 40%. Now, this seems eerily similar to conversations we were having last year, first quarter of 2023, with the kind of – you know, buying that we saw coming in and the Magnificent Seven being one of the big driving engines to the S&P 500. We're seeing that again this year, maybe not as much, because obviously, Joe, like you had mentioned, Tesla, it's having its kind of day in the barrel um, or its time in the barrel of, of not doing well. And then I also know, you know, a lot of analysts are not uh, too high up on Apple and its sales growth projections being, you know, low single digits and is it really worth it from a valuation standpoint? But here's the one thing I think that Apple has done for all investors is proved a lot of analysts wrong over a very long period of time. That's what Apple has done. When Apple can have its kind of winter season where it's maybe not as popular with investors or they're trying to retool or coming up with new ideas, but for some reason Apple always has some of the best and brightest in, in the walls of their company to come up with new ideas and ways to generate uh, revenue, to generate sales, and to generate earnings per share growth. 
Um, and so I think they're just kind of having that winter season, so to speak. But like we were saying earlier, you look at someone like Amazon, NVIDIA, even Meta, those valuations are definitely not stretched even at this point in the market. Well, let's take our next commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from me, Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So I know we spent a lot of time on this weekend's Money Wise program just talking about stock valuations, spending a lot of time focused in the tech space. I mean, obviously, this past week was all about NVIDIA and what their earnings were going to be. Of course, they delivered um, as a lot of analysts expected them to. Of course, we saw quite a bit of short covering uh, after their earnings came came out because NVIDIA ended its earnings day up almost 16% for the day. Uh, but, you know, there was other, you know, some history, I guess, that was made in the broader indexes this past week. We know we had the Dow Jones Industrial Average close above 39,000 points for the first time in history. S&P 500 saw an all-time closing high. Even the NASDAQ on Thursday, saw an all-time closing high above 16,000. Another big piece of news. Amazon is going to be moving into the Dow Jones Industrial Average list of 30 stocks, and Walgreens Boots Alliance is getting booted out of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And I believe Amazon will be going in next week, if memory serves me correct. I think it's Monday or Tuesday. They will be added to the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And so I'm... I applaud the Dow to try to create an index with it being only 30 stocks that are just a little bit more representative of the overall kind of industrial capacity, industrial companies here in this country. But one other thing I wanted to mention, since we were just talking about valuations, you know, there's other great valuations even outside of the tech space. Now, we know tech was a big driver of return for last year, the Magnificent Seven. We're seeing it again this year. And we're still in a situation where the market breadth participation, more companies in the S&P 500 starting to catch a bid or catch buyers' attention. Because when you look at the equally weighted S&P 500 through Thursday's close, it's up less than 2.5%. So that would, tell me that, that, tell, that would tell me that that's not really what's happening. It's still tech-dominated. It is. And we we still agree. got this. We still got this same problem we had in, in all of 2023. I want to take exe- take exception with a number of things that you said in the last segment, Kyle. Oh, here we go. So, oh wait, first, wait, 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 wait. We have Davidson Capital Management fight night. So I get no, to be the rest it's not of this. A, it's not a fight. I know. It's not, debate. It's not a fight. It's just I want to take. Ex- exception with a few of the things he said you know again before we into that last segment you're talking about valuations not being stretched based on five-year you know average PE ratios and all of that is predicated on estimates that can be wrong another thing that I really want to take exception with 
is that you said you think that that AI is is already having some sort of a, an effect on, on in companies. You said you know, yes. I said AI it's the infancy. We're in the it, infancy it, no, no, no. phase. It, we do not know. No, you, you said yes. We but we do not know any anything that AI has done with any companies until I hear a CEO come out and say the reason we made our earnings numbers or the reason our profit was higher than what we expected was because of our investment in AI hardware or software, then I'll start to believe that AI is having some sort of effect. Right now, you know what I'm hearing about AI, Kyle, is it's being used for no good. This is true. You know, it's creating all these fake videos, fake phone calls to people, thinking that they're, you know, people are using it for bad things. This sounds like cryptocurrency, doesn't it? Even actresses. There's an article about a famous actress no. that's upset well, you know about what? when Joe, AI Joe is Biden, doing their likeness. You know what? Joe Biden could actually use it for good to make it seem like he's lucid. <laughs> oh, my God. That's awesome. It actually has a brain <laughs> cell bouncing around in his skull. That was really good, Kyle. That was, uh, that was the best one you've so had maybe, maybe if there's a debate between – if there's actually a debate between Trump and Biden, that they can let an AI-generated version of Biden show up on the debate stage, and, oh, yeah. and Trump can Trump can debate a, a Samsung 85-inch screen, you know, with with AI Joe Biden. I don't know. Trump would but, probably still scorch him because um, you got you got to understand what AI is working with here, and it's not much. But, but you know, I, I still so said that it's in its, it's infancy phases. To me, it's 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 as Dad would it's say. It's all on the come. It's all no, on the come. We're all we're from. Was it we're from Nebraska on this? They got to show me Missouri. Pardon yeah. me, wrong state. That that'll laugh at me for that. Nebraska. We're from Missouri. We're from Missouri. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, you got to show me now. Right now, okay. What they're showing us is you put some money in these stocks. And you forget about it for a while, and they just keep going up. The question is, when when does that end? Are you too late buying it today? Are you too ba- too late buying it a year from now or two years from now? You know, how long does this go on? If we want to make some kind of comparisons between what's happening with AI and what happened with the internet, we knew that we know that the internet sensation went on for a number of years. But it you know, eventually started to bring up all stocks. It wasn't just it wasn't wasn't just internet companies that were seeing you know big rises, big huge valuations in their stock prices. Um, the focus continues to be on a, a a smaller subset of stocks. I know not to put you on the spot, Kyle. I know you're looking at the the buy volume. Um, going in today, and the buy volume seems to be declining here of late. And we've been we've been looking for this correction. Yes, go ahead, Kyle. Well, no, and, and let me just let me just talk. Let me just speak about that because you know, looking at the squiggly lines, as we say, looking at the technical side, looking average daily volume of sales of either buying or selling on the S and P five hundred. The one thing I have noticed is the buy volume from February the 8th, when we have the up-buy days, the volume is definitely declining. Um, 
we're barely getting to the daily moving average on Thursday. We were just one percent above, but on Friday, being you know being what it may, we were down eight percent in volume, and so the the volume has definitely been slowing from about the first full week of February, and and it goes back to Joe's point from last segment. If you're looking to move into these tech spaces, you don't have this allocation in your portfolio yet, or any stock that you're wanting to buy in and around here, do it very, very slowly. Case in point on Friday, new clients at Davidson Capital Management or clients, the existing clients that have brought in new money, I have been dripping this money in. We have been dripping this money in for weeks and weeks and weeks and even my last purchase this past purchase on friday i took its full position and divided that into three so i'm talking minuscule nibbling is what we're doing because i think that we're overdue for a corrective move i would agree with you jeff on that i know you were saying at the beginning of the show you were going to get not bearish but uh, maybe put on a, a bear stole, maybe not the it's, full coat, but but I told you that I'm kind of a bull right now, tiptoeing on the front of my hooves. It's flashing caution, you yes. know. It's just it's flashing it caution is. here. It is, you know. And I would agree with you on that. And so we're being extremely cautious. We're moving very slow in and around here. And we would we would recommend that for anyone listening to the show that's either investing on your own or working with somebody else. To just like Joe said, don't go in whole hog. Yeah, Joe. I, I think conversely too, what we did earlier this week is we have a sell strategy. So if we look at particular stocks and we think the valuations are a little stretched in our eyes, we have a point where we're going to go ahead and take some profits on them. So you have to have that strategy also if you're creating a portfolio of stocks or even ETFs, Jeff. Sorry. Yeah. That's so right. just to kind of let let the listeners in on. This meeting we had earlier in the week, the debate between us was whether we should just sell some stocks totally outright out of the portfolio that we thought had reached their full valuation and we just wanted to be completely out of them versus uh, trimming some of the highest of the high flyers, which we've been we've trimmed some of these multiple times, uh, which reminds me of some of the things that we, we had done in 2021. Uh, into 2022 with some stocks. Uh, the decision was to just trim some of the stocks and not sell anything outright. There was also a debate between us. If we sold some of these stocks outright, do we immediately replace them with these other names that are waiting in the wings? And the consensus was is because of this flashing caution that we feel like we're, the markets are in right now, that uh, we we're going to we we're going to look for lower prices to to make some of those changes in the portfolio. Whether that's going to happen in the next week, the next two weeks, the next three weeks, the next quarter, no one knows the timing. You know, specifically, there is a lot of economic news next week. There is a ton of Fed speak uh, next week, uh, and so when we come back from the break. Maybe we'll go into a little bit of that. I know Joe has what we want to talk about, uh, a subject that has to do with a big employer 401k plan. So I guess after this break, we'll come back and we'll talk about those things. Okay. Well, we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. 
Your Money Wise Guys will be back after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise Guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise Guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast or Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. On our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program, Jeff, before we went to break, you're alluding to we got a lot of Fed speak coming up next week. We've got a lot of economic stats coming up this week, although we did have an economic stat this past week that we have talked about ad nauseum on every single uh, every single month on the Money Wise program. And what was that stat, that econ <laughs> well, stat? That's just so mind-blowing. The leading yes. economic indicators was down again for the 23rd month in a row. We're approaching two full years of continuous negative leading economic indicators, consecutive leading negative economic indicators. And what I thought was really interesting about this announcement is they had this one, this analyst. I'm not going to give this person's name. I've never heard of this analyst before. But this analyst, even though we've had 20, now we've had 23 straight months of leading negative leading economic indicators, because six of the 10 components of that measure were positive, they're saying that the leading economic indicators now indicates that we're not in danger of an imminent recession. Even though this number what are the typically... Other four? What are the other four? How are they calculating this? I mean, almost so, two years? Here's the, here's the quote. While the declining leading economic indicators continues to signal headwinds to economic activity... For the first time in the past two years, six out of its ten components were positive contributors over the past six-month period. As a result, the leading index currently does not signal recession ahead. While no longer forecasting a recession in 2024, we do expect real GDP growth to slow to near 0% over quarter two and quarter three. It's, it's funny how they're now parsing this, this number out. Because it's been, it had been so right, but it's been so wrong these last two years. Now we're just we're gonna we're gonna parse it in such a way to now say, all right, forget about that. It's still negative, and forget about we've got twenty three consecutive negative numbers. We don't. It's it's not it's not saying there's a recession imminent. Well, I, I mean, as we've talked about at length on this program, you know, week in week out, month over month. As we talked about last week, you know, the Fed, 40% of the CPI data is coming from housing statistics that are 12 months old. And that when you use more up-to-date housing data, the Fed is at their mandate. They're at 2% or less CPI. You have Vice Chair Jeffries coming out saying, you know what, I could see interest rates be cut in the near term, and we don't need to see destruction in employment. We don't need to see any further destruction in the economy. 
because we all know that it's a lagging effect of all the interest rate increases. Then you hear leading economic indicators being negative for 23 months in a row. The PCE, which used to be the personal consumption expenditure, used to be the data point the Fed used to make their policy decisions, no longer being paid attention to. It's like we have such a confluence of conflicting information and the Fed not wanting to be proactive, always being reactionary. And then my concern is with us being in a presidential election year, how is that going to be viewed if the Fed is cutting interest rates in August and September coming up? Well, not August because they have they have uh, Jackson Hole, so they don't actually have a meeting, but September and October before a presidential election. So you're basically How saying, listen to work? our show. The, the, the answer saying. is they won't. Well, the answer, the answer yeah, is they won't. they won't be. So if they're going to cut, not saying they're cutting in March, because I agree with you, Jeff. They're, they're not going to cut in March. They don't have the data. Although I just talked about the confluence or, or the confusion of all these different data points. They're, they're not cutting in March. But April, May, June, well, 25 basis points. Yeah. So let's see what happens just to I mean, test you, the waters. You had said this to me during one of our conversations when we had our portfolio strategy meeting. When we had CPI reported that, I think it was on a Wednesday, hotter than expected. And what was that good for? The worst day, day the, wor- the worst day in the Dow in almost a year. Six, uh, you know, mi- minus 600. And it, and it recovered. It's, and then we get bounce you know hotter, right hotter PPI number and we bounce right back. Right now, the market's mentality is they're buying every dip. That. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily last forever. They they buy the dips until they don't, and they and they ignore some of the economic st- statistics until they don't anymore. And that's why, to me, it's just there's just this big caution flashing right well, now well, when, when it comes I, I, when it. I can't. I can't imagine the Fed sitting around, all the governors sitting around, having their conversations. Say we've got mortgages over seven. We have car loans. We have car loans approaching double digits. And if you have bad credit, well into the double digits. I, I can't see them sitting around saying, you know what, this is going to be good. This is going to be good for the economy. You know, the, the one thing that might push them, Kyle, is. And we had this happen this last week. We had a bad, uh, or what was perceived to be a bad government bond auction for the participation. Mm-hmm. The markets had no reaction to that. Mm-hmm. If we if we start to have more of these quote unquote bad auctions, that's going to march up yields on the long end. That's you know the market's going to start paying attention to that. And yeah, the Fed might pay attention to that. But you know what the Fed can do? They could say we're going to end quantitative quantitative tightening. Yeah, and we're going to start buying bonds again because, like you were discuss when we were discussing in our portfolio strategy meeting, all three of us, if the dealers are having to start picking up more and more of this treasury inventory, and then they start pushing back saying, "Hey, we have enough inventory, and we don't have enough buyers out there, so rates are going to have to go up," and the government's like, "You know what? We can't afford to continue to pay these higher rates." Well, guess what the Fed does? The Fed has tools to come in to stop quantitative tightening and to go back to doing quantitative easing, and they could do that by buying some of that inventory, which will bring rates lower, but they don't have to cut interest rates. They don't have to change their overnight rate. 
they can just kick in quantitative easing first before they actually cut interest rates. So that is something that they could do. Bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, the Fed has tools that they can utilize, whether it's quantitative easing or just cutting, of course, the overnight rates to start bringing interest rates down. But at mortgage rates and car loans and the bigger purchase financing charges of this level, it can't stay there forever before it does have an effect on the economy and the Fed will have to step in. Well, with that, we're going to take our next break. We're hitting the top of the hour, and when we come back from the top of the hour news, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. So stay tuned, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. I've got my father, John. I'm your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us here at Davidson Capital Management, you can go to our website at DavidsonCap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Now, if you missed the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past Money Wise shows. And you can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage. So in our second hour of this weekend's program, again, like to use the second hour to go into investor education And the topic for this second hour is really a topic that needs to be on on a rotation each and every month because it is such a critical topic for investors all across the country to learn, understand, and realize when it comes to the point of them selecting an investment professional to work with and what they need to be looking for and how they can research and find out the background and education levels and licensing levels of the investment professional that they're planning on working with. Now, a topic that we have discussed on past Money Wise programs, and I feel like we've been talking about this for years. I think from the beginning of the show. Well, I know that we've talked about this particular subject, again, the differences between a broker, a stockbroker, and a registered investment advisor, but in particular the the research and analysis that the Securities and Exchange Commission is doing when it comes down to the fiduciary standard. Uh, and later on in this hour, I'm going to go into the definition of the fiduciary standard and what stockbrokers, what laws and directions they have to follow working with their clients and what what laws and rules and regulations that registered investment advisors like us here at Davidson Capital Management have to follow, and in particular revolving around this fiduciary standard, because this has been a topic that has been discussed at length 
really post-financial crisis. Um, and the Dodd-Frank Act, which took effect in 2010, put in uh, an actual an actual law that goes into the ability of the Securities and Exchange Commission to create a uniform fiduciary standard, which has yet to actually take place uh, across the financial service industry. And an article that came out of the Wall Street Journal this past week uh, titled SEC uh, Head Backs Fiduciary Standards for Brokers and Advisors Again, goes into Mary Jo White, who's the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, you know, really wanting tighter standards uh, for financial advisors who recommend stocks, bonds, and mutual funds to individual investors. And for any longtime listener to this program, they understand that your traditional stockbroker is on the financial sales side of the financial service industry, where registered investment advisors like us at Davidson Capital Management are on the asset management side of the industry. Well, let me say something right here, Kyle. The word advisor, I think, confuses the man in the street. In the old days, when I was a broker, we were either a broker or a registered representative. Advisors, financial advisors or investment advisors, by definition, we're registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. What has happened is the word registered representative or broker has been dropped by Wall Street, and they have picked up various terms which they really like to use, whether it's a wealth manager or a they like financial advisor. Financial advisor, but they obviously don't say registered financial advisor because they wouldn't be working for a brokerage firm or registered few. investment advisor. So, so, so you the word advisor confuses the investor in the street. It it, it does, and a, again, I don't. I mean, I, I would hate to say that this is just strictly marketing, but it really comes down it is to marketing. marketing. It it does come down to marketing, and it's to convey the idea to a potential to a prospective client that the powers and abilities of that investment professional are above and beyond what they actually legally can do or what they normally do do with you know when it comes to working with their clients and you know last month the labor department is planning its own set of rules to tighten standards on financial professionals who advise on retirement account investments such as 401ks and of course and Bar- president yes, obama, president obama has endorsed these these we haven't had a president get involved and 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 so he came out several months back talking about wanting to have these new standards and and you know really the department of labor is going and saying well hey we're putting in these new standards securities and exchange commission why don't you put these standards in as well and Mary Jo White the head of the SEC makes it very clear that you know we're two different regulatory agencies and that we have our own processes and procedures that we have to go through in order to put this into place, but that she had, she had stated that she has been intensely studying this fiduciary standard regulations and what exactly the Securities and Exchange Commission is going to do. Now, the fact that she's been intensely studying this for just the last few months, I feel like we've been talking about this for years, so why is it just being... Intensely studied over just the last couple of months. Well, maybe before we put our listeners totally to sleep using these fiduciary words and whatnot, why not give an example of why this should be something our listeners should be listening to? 
Well, I'm going to have to get to that example after we come back from the commercial break because the the, yeah, the story. The no, you didn't check the clock. The 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 real world example I'm going to give, and and it really could apply to some of our a lot of our listeners that are listening right now of what you might run into when it comes to that point in time where you're ready to hop on that horse and ride off into the retirement sunset and you start going out and interviewing investment professionals that you might be planning or or looking to work with. And as we've always advocated on this show, don't get caught behind the eight ball when it comes time to prepare and plan for your retirement as far as the investment professional that you're going to work with. You need to start the interview process six to eight months out, even 12 months out, just so you get all of your ducks in a row because the last thing we would want to see happen, and we've seen this time and time again talking and working with prospective clients coming into Davidson Capital Management, is that they waited to the last minute, they got thrown a sales pitch at them, that sounded so good to be true, too good to be true, but they signed on that dotted line and wound up getting involved in something that they wound up later regretting because they didn't do their proper due diligence uh, and doing the research it, It's re- research that's required before you hire an investment professional. So when we come back from the commercial break, I'll give you an example of going into the differences between suitability and fiduciary standard, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the MoneyWise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing our investor education, um, and again, I, I know we were talking during commercial break that some of this subject matter might be seen dry and boring, but this hour is so critical for any investor to listen and to learn from to protect themselves, to protect the retirement nest egg that they have worked 30, 35, 40, 45 years to build to not get taken by potentially unscrupulous investment professionals that are looking to make a very large and quick buck and big commission and to understand the rules and regulations that folks follow in the financial service industry and how they vary so greatly between that of your traditional stockbroker versus a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management. So I wanted to give you a real-world example, and this comes from one of our clients, this real-world example. Um, Several years ago, we had met, I mean, several years, I mean, we're talking six, seven years ago, met with a prospective client who was going to be retiring and had, excuse me, had already retired, had purchased an annuity, very sizable annuity, and the annuity was getting ready to be outside of its surrender penalty period. And they were looking to do something else with it. So they met with us, gave them you know, the, whole, the whole spiel, 
the whole presentation as we do with any prospective client after we did a, a portfolio review and analysis for this prospective client. And I remember distinctly remembering in the meeting, I, I told him, whatever you do, whether you hire us or you hire somebody else, do not buy another annuity. And he said, gotcha. Got it. Understand. So this prospective client goes, leaves our office, follow up with them, don't hear back from them. About 16 months later, we get a phone call, and it was this prospective client. And he said, I need to come in and talk to you. Okay, comes in. Before I even round my desk, he says, you're probably wondering why I'm here. I'm like, sure. Why are you here? He said, well, I should have listened to your advice, and I didn't. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, look. And he hands me his paperwork, and what he had bought was another annuity, a variable annuity. And I asked him why. You know, give me the background as to what you did. He said, I called two stockbrokers in New York City. I called two stockbrokers in the state of Florida. I called a stockbroker in San Antonio, Texas. And all five of these stockbrokers all recommended an annuity to me. And he said, after talking to all five of these different brokers, different offices, at different firms in different states, he thought to himself, well, if all five of these brokers are recommending annuity, then this is the direction that I need to go. This is what I should be buying because these five folks don't know each other from Adam, and they don't even work for the same firms, but that's what they're recommending. And, of course, when I relayed to the prospective client who then became a client that the reason why they were recommending it is because it pays the highest commission on Wall Street and explained to him round about the six-figure commission that was paid to these brokers, I just about saw his jaw hit the floor. Well, he wanted a guaranteed stream of income. That is what he wanted. It was important to him to have a monthly check. So when he went to these brokers and said, I want a guaranteed stream of income that I know it's coming in, well, the brokers basically have two choices, both of which are suitable for him. Choice number one is an annuity. Whichever insurance company that brokerage firm uses, they will select that annuity. That annuity will pay the most generous commission there is for a broker on Wall Street today, as far as we know. The other choice to provide guaranteed income is a government bond. In fact, it's the only investment, not the annuity, that can truly say, say it provides a guaranteed stream of income. The only difference being the income can vary because government bond rates will vary with maturities. For the broker, however, the commission on the same portfolio is about 98, 99% less than what he would be getting personally in the annuity. That is why five different brokers from five different firms in four different states all had the same example. They were both suitable investments, and the broker only has to do what is suitable. And that is the whole point of this second hour is to relay real-world examples of the difference between suitability and fiduciary. 
And just to kind of go into that, you know, what is a fiduciary? A fiduciary is someone that manages money for the benefit of, of another called a beneficiary. A fiduciary is bound by law to place the interest of its beneficiary first before the fiduciary's own interest. Now, stockbrokers, also called registered representatives, account executives, financial advisors, wealth managers, are not fiduciaries. Even though they have engaged in high-visibility advertising to portray themselves as full-service investment advisors. It's real easy. Ask your stockbroker. If he or she holds a Series 7 securities license, if he or she does, then it's it's probable that they aren't a fiduciary. And you have to understand, a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management are subject to the Investment Advisor Act of 1940, which makes us a fiduciary. Okay? And... It's so, so important. I mean, we cannot stress this enough to understand the difference. In the same example, a choice for us between an annuity and a portfolio of government bonds, as a fiduciary, we have to go with government bonds because that is what is best for the client, not what is suitable. What is best as a fiduciary? And a non-fiduciary stockbroker follows only the suitability standard, which doesn't require a stockbroker to place the interest of their client ahead of their own. Under the non-fiduciary suitability standard, a stockbroker need provide only suitable advice to to their clients, even if the stockbroker knows that the advice is not in the client's best interest. A non-fiduciary stockbroker, you know, bottom line, they have a fiduciary duty to their broker-dealer, to who employs them. That is who they have a fiduciary duty to, not their client. And it, I, I can tell you, Dad, when I sit down with prospective clients and I tell them that financial salespeople, stockbrokers, are not required by law to put their interests in front of their own, it blows their mind. But what's, a, what's unfortunate is that individual investors don't understand that there is a difference between what registered investment advisors do, what we do here, versus what a broker does. It was the manager at Bayesian Company that I worked for as a manager that led me to become a registered investment advisor. That you worked as a broker for. Yes, I worked as a broker for them. One day I was analyzing the bond market. I was sitting at my desk looking at this chart, that chart, and he came up to me and said, John, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to figure out what the long bond's doing. And he said, we don't pay you to be an analyst. We pay you to sell securities. We're not in the business of analyzing markets, managing money. We're in the business of selling securities. The light went on in my head, and from that day forward, I chose the path of becoming a registered investment advisor. And it all went back to the manager at a brokerage firm and a young broker trying to understand and help his clients. And a registered investment advisor must follow the trust standard, and it's the highest known in law, which requires an RIA, a registered investment advisor, to place the interest of their client ahead of their own to fulfill the critical fiduciary duties of trust and confidence. 
So again, that's the trust standard versus the suitability standard. And this is why when you go to the big name brand broker dealers, I mean, you can list them off. There's commercials all over the place, all over television, radio, the computer for these, for these firms. You know, you have to understand they're in the job of asset collection, asset harvesting to sell investment products. And it's also important when we come back from the bottom of the hour break to, to go into a lot of the proprietary relationships that are in place with your traditional broker-dealers and mutual fund families and other investment product providers to understand. And really, I think what also led a lot of investors to, to have received advice during the financial crisis of staying the course and why that advice came so much so from your traditional broker-dealer or stock brokerage type firms. And so we'll get into that when we come back from the, from the commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing discussing that critical difference between your traditional stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, um, I wanted to talk briefly about the proprietary relationships that brokerage firms have. Now, prior to joining Davidson Capital Management, I spent a few years uh, as a mutual fund wholesaler where... My clients, as a mutual fund wholesaler, were stockbrokers. I sold my company's loaded mutual funds to brokers in the state of Texas because that was part of my territory in the state of Texas. And it's important for investors to understand of these relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms. Um, And every single mutual fund family, you're going to have a mutual fund family that has some great mutual funds, some decent to average mutual funds and some not so good mutual funds. Dogs. Dogs. Poor performing mutual funds. But a lot of these brokerage offices have very limited shelf space of the mutual fund families that they want really prominently displayed in the office. And sometimes in order to get shelf space, there are marketing fees that are paid and things of that nature. Now again, this was in the late '90s, early 2000s when I did the, you know, when I was a mutual fund wholesaler. Um, it's important to understand that a mutual fund wholesaler's job is to gain a relationship with a broker and to educate them about the mutual funds that are being made available by the fund family and sell them on why they need to be selling these funds to the clients. But it's also important for clients to understand that some mutual fund families have revenue sharing agreements with brokerage firms where the brokerage firm collects a portion of the management fee being charged by the mutual fund family for those clients' assets to be in there. And really the point I'm working towards is getting back to the financial crisis. 
because when we're meeting with prospective clients after the financial crisis, we always, when we do our portfolio reviews and analysis, I always ask, well, what was the advice and guidance that you were receiving from your investment professional, from your broker during the financial crisis? And 10 out of 10 times, the advice was stay the course. And they were, the prospective client would question me, you know, why was the advice stay the course? Why wasn't it like, let's get a little more liquid. Let's, let's get some money on the sidelines. Let's get some cash on hand. And I really, and again, in, in, in my 17 years of experience, what my mind leads back to is revenue sharing agreements that brokerage firms have with mutual fund families and other financial product providers that if assets are not in these mutual funds, then there's no revenue to share because there's no management fee being generated by the mutual fund family. So if advice coming from brokers to their clients was let's sell, let's get more liquid, then these brokerage firms could be slicing their own throat and the revenues that they're that, that are being driven that they're being driven off of these mutual fund holdings by their clients at these brokerage firms. So it would have seriously cut into their bottom line if it was let's get out, let's get liquid, because now there's no revenue coming from these outside mutual fund families. And it's important for investors to understand. And I can tell you that when we do portfolio reviews and analysis, and particularly there's certain brokerage firms that have affinity, that have a love for very particular mutual fund families. Well, you can basically name a firm, and we will name without even, look, without even looking at the portfolio, not even seeing the portfolio, we could bet the potential client you own one of these funds. From a particular fund family. Just because we've been doing this, you know, in our 26th year of business, and we've reviewed quite a few portfolios in those 26 years, we see a pattern, we see a trend, and because of my inside intimate knowledge of the relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms, it's no surprise. Now, listeners are probably, you know, y'all are probably hearing this on the radio thinking, well, gosh, how can brokerage firms do this? It's suitable. They're in, it's suitable. It's suitable. It's, it's suitable. It, it's they're suitable. not violating any rules. They're not violating any laws. That is the whole point of this second hour is so you understand. There's a great commercial on right now. I love this commercial because it really sums up what we're talking about. And it's these two gentlemen, and he's giving the guidance to the prospective client, and he hands him this giant grain of salt. <laughs> And he hands it to him, and he says, you know, the, we're going to be in this fund, this fund, this fund. And he says, oh, by the way, I get paid a higher commission and higher trailing fees on this because of our proprietary relationship, you know, with these with these funds. And he said, well, you know, shouldn't that be illegal? And he's kind of like, yeah, I, well, no, not, not really. I mean, he kind of has a look like, well, I guess you got a point, but no, it's not illegal. But I'm going to be making higher higher fees off this proprietary relationship that we have with these fund families. And I love that commercial. It's just started playing, so I'm sure our listeners have seen this commercial. Pay attention to it because that is what we are talking about. Well, you know, there's another commercial that the financial consultants are doing in which they hired a DJ in Dallas 
and they cleaned him up, got rid of his dreadlocks. He's really a nice-looking guy. Well, no, that's talking about financial planners, and I have a whole other bone to pick about financial planners, yes, but, which I'll get to. But within this, he looks the part. They put him in a he nice sounds the part. They put him in a nice office, you know, glass, uh, everything you would want. He's got the columns. He's got the suit. He's smooth-talking. We, and, and he asked him, would you give me the account? Well, sure we would. And he said, would you like to know what my experience is? And, and I'm a my, DJ. You know, I'm a DJ. And he shows pictures of him, you know, dancing around. So, uh, you know, again, but I think that also comes back to another article, which we're not going to talk about on this weekend show, about just the number of don't, – don't let the number of accolades and awards received by a financial <laughs> professional dazzle you, think, making you think that they have a higher level of expertise or experience and experience than they actually do because again it's all marketing um but you know i will i do want to talk about uh financial planners before we go to the next break because this is something we've also talked about on the show and financial planning has has really become a a really booming industry and there are designations a certified financial planner which is a very difficult designation to get you have to go through a lot of education, a lot of test taking. It is not easy to do. Plus, you have to have industry experience to get the CFP designation. And we're not taking away from that because it's a very prestigious designation. It is. But you have to be very, very careful how this potential financial, how this financial planner is getting compensated because we have seen situations where financial planners are using this financial planning designation as another marketing tool, as a way to sell investment products, as a way to generate commissions. So you have to ask as the prospective client, how are you getting compensated? Are you fee-only? Are you fee-based financial planner? Or are you selling investment products where you're earning a commission and you need to ask those questions and if they're not giving you a straight answer that is when you slowly get up from the table and you walk away you as a prospective client have the right to ask a straight straight up question and get a straight up answer ask them do you have your series seven if they have a series seven pretty good chance they're compensated on commissions and that's when with the whole situation with suitability versus the fiduciary standard. If they say, well, I have my 65, which is to be a, a registered investment advisor representative, without a Series 7 or a Series 6, then they'd be leaning more on the side of fee only. And, of course, at Davidson Capital Management, we are completely fee only registered investment advisors, which puts us on the same side of the table as our clients because the more money we make for our clients, the more money we make for ourselves, and vice versa. We are not compensated based on commission, and being a registered investment advisor means that we are fiduciaries. We have to follow the trust standard required by law to put our client's interest in front of our own. But you have to understand these differences when you sit down with a financial professional to understand who you're potentially getting involved in and don't let a lot of letters after their name on the card dazzle you into thinking that they have a level of expertise and knowledge that they may or may not have. You have to vet them out yourself. You have to dig deeper. As I have said, going back to 2005 on this radio show, 
And, you know, what we've also talked about on the show is the way that you can look up your investment professional that you're thinking of working with or who you're, or who you are currently working with simply by going to Google, typing in the Google search broker check, and that will take you to the FINRA website. And FINRA is the regulatory body overseeing the really the financial sales arm of the financial service industry. You type in your broker's name and it will go to their report. Now, the one thing to keep in mind, and I've seen this, is that we've seen brokers starting to use middle names or different first names to try to get around potential bad reports. I've noticed this, that they make these name changes so you can't track them down as easily, but you still have that tool available as a prospective client to go in and do research on that investment professional to find out if they have any regulatory issues, any customer complaints, what those complaints are involved, to see if they have any personal bankruptcy or personal financial issues, or if they've had any criminal misdemeanor or felony charges in their lifetime. So utilize the tools that are available. Well, we've got to take our last commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So before we went to commercial break, again, spending the second hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program talking about, again, the critical differences between a stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, and, and, and also at the beginning of the hour talking about how the SEC is still in the process of studying to find out whether they're going to hold traditional stockbrokers to the same fiduciary standard as we are held to as a registered investment advisor here at Davidson Capital Management. And I have a feeling this is going to be an ongoing saga that's never going to reach a conclusion um, because, again, I think that this would put a serious uh, dampening on revenues at traditional broker-dealer firms across this country. So I'm definitely not holding my breath. The fact that this that this provision or, or the discussion of adding this provision has been around since the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010, and we're now in 2015, and the head of the SEC, Mary Jo White, has only been intensely studying it for the last few months. I'm not holding my breath no, that anything is going to get done. Going to so what you have to do as an investor, you have to arm yourself with knowledge. That's one reason why we have the Money Wise program and why we're in our 10th year of doing it. But you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to be an educated consumer. And before you sign on that line as dotted, you have to utilize all the, the research capabilities that are available on the Internet. And as we went to the last commercial break, talking about utilizing the FINRA website, which is the regulatory body of broker-dealers, of stockbrokers, 
and doing what's called a broker check. By Googling, broker check takes you right to the website. You type in your broker's name, and you pull up their permanent record. I always jokingly <laughs> say, you know, in from high school, yeah, in high office. school, you've got your permanent record. Well, in the financial service industry, whether you're a registered investment advisor like we are, or if you're a or if you're a stockbroker, we all have a permanent record called our U4. And it tracks you throughout your entire career. So if you've had run-ins with client complaints, customer complaints, and what those complaints are, to see that if you've actually gotten sued by a former client and actually had to pay restitution, or if the brokerage firm or firm you worked for had to pay restitution. It talks about if you've had any kind of bankruptcies or personal financial uh, issues that is also reported in the U4 on broker check, or if you've had any misdemeanor or felony charges. And, I mean, I know for a fact, just from doing my own research, that we have an insurance salesman here in town that avoided a potential 10 years in prison on a drug felony charge <laughs> because of illegal search and seizure. I found this on broker check. I found this on broker check. I, I found a, a gentleman here in town, we, a prospective client, was getting ready to hand over over a million dollars of his hard work, his life savings, and this financial professional had filed bankruptcy three separate times. Now, I understand people run into financial difficulties. You know, I'm not making light of that. But if you've run into a situation where you've had to file bankruptcy multiple times and you can't keep your own financial house in order... I, as a prospective client, I would be a little nervous turning over my life savings to someone who's a financial professional who can't keep their own financial house in order. There's just no reason for people to do this when this is available to them. That's right. And, and, and again, you're going to go and, and look up financial professionals that have a very clean record, but it's also going to show you what licensing they have going back to this, that if they have a Series 7, that their compensation can come in the form of commissions. So again, knowing that they're on the financial sales side of the business, um, you know, for us at Davidson Capital Management, having our Series 65 as a registered representative of a registered investment advisory firm, we follow the fiduciary standard that we have to follow as an RIA. I haven't seen numbers. I know once upon a time, I think we quoted there's 15,000 of us and there's over 300,000 of them. Closer to 400,000. I mean, Registered investment advisors is a very small minority in the financial service industry. So you're more often than not going to run into a traditional stockbroker than you are a registered investment advisor. Now, I, I want to just kind of give this blanket disclosure. You know, we're not using this hour to beat upon brokers. There are a lot of good, hardworking brokers. In fact, one of my friends is a broker that, that are, do right by their client, that do a good job. But you have to understand as an investor what type of an investor you are. If you're the type of an investor that likes to call the shots of what's bought and what's sold in your portfolio and when that occurs, you're best suited to work with a stockbroker. That's really what they're there for. They, You can ask them questions. They can give you some advice and guidance. You can bounce investment ideas off of them. They can give you their personal opinion, and they can process the trades for you. If you're the type of investor that doesn't 
want to have that control, that wants to turn over the decision-making on a day-to-day basis to the investment professional, then you're best suited to work with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management. And you have to understand the brokerage industry over the last 15-plus years, because of the pressure they've been feeling from registered investment advisory firms like us, have developed programs to give you that active asset management from either themselves at the brokerage firm or an outside money management firm that they partner with. But you have to understand that your broker is not the person that is making those day-to-day decisions. Your broker is nothing more than the middleman of that transaction. They're getting paid a fee to steer your money to an outside asset manager or to the home office to an asset management group that you will have no relationship with, they won't know you from Adam, and you're paying an extra layer of fees on top to have your broker being nothing more than a mouthpiece in this transaction, where instead of working directly with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management, you eliminate that extra layer of fees. You go directly to the source and you have that personal relationship with that investment professional who's making those day-to-day decisions with your assets, you can look at them in the white of their eyes when you're working directly with a registered investment advisor. So you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to understand those critical differences between a broker and a registered investment advisor and the differences between what is suitable, what brokers follow, and what registered investment advisors follow as a fiduciary and following that fiduciary standard. And if any of our listeners want more education, do not hesitate to pick up the phone and give us a call at Davidson Capital Management at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And with that, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. For my father, John, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend. And to your financial health, we will talk to you next week.